Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is episode number 1246 on the six reasons you'll feel lost in life and how to find yourself. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. I receive a lot of messages from my listeners, which I'm always grateful for. It means a lot to me when you reach out to me. But a lot of you mentioned feeling lost in life right now. You feel stuck in a situation that you can't see the way out of. And a lot of us have been there and you're not alone. I'm telling you, I've been there. I've felt stuck many times. You are not alone in this process. In today's episode, I wanted to bring together some extremely impactful conversations from women on the show in honor of Women's History Month to help you find yourself and start loving yourself again. In this episode, we discuss what it means to truly belong with Brene Brown, how to advocate for yourself with Sarah Jakes Roberts, how to stop self-sabotaging with Mel Robbins, the importance of owning your truth with Laverne Cox, why you need to stop putting pressure on yourself with Marie Forleo, the importance of being able to respond instead of react with Candace Parker, and so much more. Okay, in just a moment, let's dive into today's episode. Okay, listen to this crazy fact. Traditional lawn care lays down 90 million pounds of pesticides each year. But there's another solution, Sunday. So you don't have to choose between having a beautiful yard and keeping your family out of harm's way, which I know is especially important to my business partner and good friend, Matt, who wants to make sure his yard is a place that his two young kids can play around in safely. Sunday can help you grow a beautiful lawn without the guesswork or the nasty chemicals. And their custom plans include fertilizer and everything you need to easily care for your lawn made from kid and pet safe ingredients like seaweed, iron, and molasses. All you have to do is visit GetSunday.com, put in your address, and their lawn analysis tool does the rest. They'll use soil and climate data to create a personal nutrient plan delivered to your door. Their ready-to-use pouch attaches to your garden hose and it takes less than 15 minutes to spray your lawn. I know Matt is pumped to try it out when it arrives and I'm excited to hear how he likes it with his kids. And Sunday is offering our listeners 20% off. Full season plans just start at $129. And you can get 20% off at checkout when you visit GetSunday.com Greatness20. That's 20% off your custom plan at GetSunday.com slash Greatness20. In this first section, best-selling author Brene Brown talks about what it means to truly belong and how to really live in alignment with the truest version of yourself. I didn't know who I was for a very long time and still I'm trying to learn who I am. Yeah, me and too. You are? Yeah. But you seem like you have it all figured out. Oh God, no, I don't. No, I don't have it. I mean, first of all, 
I think the one thing I've learned in my research above all else is that in the absence of love and belonging, there's always suffering. Mm. So when I hear about your experiences growing up, that's suffering, yeah. you know, that's real suffering. And for me, not making the drill team when I was, I think it was in eighth grade, by itself is not a lot, but how my family responded to it. It was like when things changed for me and I didn't feel like I belonged to my family anymore. So I think that I still am trying to figure it out. I don't know, I don't know that I've, inter I don't know that I've interviewed anyone, even spiritual leaders who have the belonging thing completely nailed because mm. I don't think it is what we think it is. You know, I don't think that it's having a big posse of friends or having a crew or rolling with a bunch of people. I think I'm still trying to figure it out because I still feel lonely and alone and on the outside of things on a really regular basis. Really? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going on a book tour with thousands of people, yeah. a 15 city tour, yeah. millions of fans around the world and you still feel alone. Yeah, I can feel really lonely. Why? And it's really hard because, you know, you talk about that book tour, I'm a severely introverted, yes, super private, and so I love that connection between me and an audience, but it can also be hard on me. And also, I'm talking about things that no one, it's weird to me that people sign up to talk about them, but they're hard topics sometimes, and we laugh, and we have fun, and we'll sing, but um, I think what I've learned in doing the research on belonging is that belonging is being a part of something bigger than yourself, mm. but it's also the courage to stand alone and to belong to yourself above all else. And so I think I spend a lot of time belonging to myself and sometimes that makes other people uncomfortable. Mm. And so I think that's hard. I think I do feel, I'm always looking for, I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for the roadmap. Like I wanna find the researcher, storyteller, Christian, lover of all people, fighter of the resistance. I wanna find the blueprint of who's ahead of me believing what I believe in and doing it really well. Mm -hmm. But there's not really a blueprint sometimes. <laughs> from, you know, like We're all trying to figure it out. Yeah. We're all trying to figure yeah. it out. I don't get to copy anybody. And so it's hard. Yeah. It's still hard, but here's a thing that has changed everything for me. I belong to me. So even when I feel alone and I wonder like, who's my crew and who are my people? Um, I belong to me for sure, mm -hmm. for the first time in my life maybe. Yeah, and I think we lose ourselves sometimes by trying to belong in groups that we don't fit in. Yeah. You know, I remember being in, you know, the youngest on these sports teams growing up. I was playing on the junior varsity as a freshman or the varsity or whatever. So yeah. I was the youngest. And I remember just wanting to fit in, just yeah. like you did in the, yeah. uh, that team. And I wanted to fit in. I wanted to feel like they liked me, like I mattered, yeah. like I was the cool kid or whatever. Yeah. And when they would do things that I didn't really agree with or they would bully other kids or make fun of people, it's like I didn't want to not say anything. You know, I didn't want to stand against them because I wanted no. to belong. Yeah. So if I did stand up against them, then that means I was alone. And that was my biggest fear, was being alone. No, oh, yeah, because that's what, that's what teams and groups deliver. Mm -hmm. They deliver this thing that you're not alone. Yeah. The problem is there's just, I was so shocked to learn in the research that the opposite of belonging is fitting in. Because fitting in is assessing a group of huh. people 
and thinking, who do I need to be? What do I need to say? What do I need to wear? How do I need to act? And changing who you are. And true belonging never asks us to change who we are. It demands that we be who we are. Because if we, if we, be, if we fit in because how we've changed ourselves, that's not belonging. That's not belonging because you betrayed yourself for other people. Mm. And that's not sustainable. Yeah, you start to lose yourself. You start to lose yourself, exactly what you said. And so I think it's hard. You have to show up as who you are. How do we find out who we are? That's the life's work, right? That's <laughs> freaking hard. Um, you do just you keep... know who you are? Uh, yeah, I do. Who are you? <laughs> uh, in what way? If, if someone just said, who are you, Brene, what would you say? Uh, Brene Brown. Mom, partner, researcher, storyteller, Texan. I don't know, I ask them how much time they have. Mm. Because, you know, the thing is that we want to, when we ask people who they are and we want to know, we'd like those really easy files to put them yeah, in. Of course. But I'm a complicated person. Are you? Yeah, and so I think, I know who I am. What makes you complicated? I don't know if I'm complicated, but I'm complex. Mm. Um, You're interesting. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> very some interesting. Days, yeah, some days, no. Very you interesting. Know, I think what makes me complex is, I think what makes everyone complex mm. is the paradoxical nature of people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I speak in public. I love doing that, but I'm but incredibly introverted. introverted. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of a traditionalist around things. Yeah. Um, my kids say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am but I also raise them to challenge authority every time they get the opportunity to do that, mm. but to be really polite when they're doing sure, it. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I think I'm, um, I'm unapologetically earnest. Mm. Like I believe in the goodness of people, but I believe it's hard work to stay out of fear and stay good. Yeah. And so I think I understand people, I think I have a lot of empathy, but I'm also not afraid of discomfort. Yeah. So I think there's just a lot of push and pull. Sure. And I think that's true of all of us. I do not like to be defined. Mm. I think that's- Do some, you? I, I was gonna say, I feel like my entire life, I didn't wanna be defined as well. They were yeah. like, you're gonna be this jock in college, right. you're gonna be like this alcoholic, yeah. you're gonna be in the frats. Yeah. All my siblings said this to me, and I was like, no I'm not. I made a bet with each one of my siblings, $100 each, that I wouldn't have one sip of alcohol in college. Cause I was like, I'm gonna go against everything you think I'm gonna be. Yeah. I joined uh, the school musical because they were like, you're just gonna do sports. I sang, I played guitar, I salsa dance. I was like, I'm gonna do everything different than what people would expect of a tall white man, right? That's awesome. I was like, I wanna be different. Yeah. And I think in that process, I was like trying to discover who I really was, what I liked, my yeah. dreams, what, you know, what was fun for me. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to just trying to fit the box and the mold of everyone right. else because you can lose yourself in that fitting in, I think. You can lose yourself in the fitting in and you can lose yourself in the rebuttal to the fitting in. It's true. Trying to go against it all yeah. true, yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, it's this thing that, it's a, it's a quote that is, Braving the Wilderness is all about this, starts with this quote from Maya Angelou that you're, we're never free until we belong nowhere, which, we belong everywhere, which is nowhere, which is no place at all which I thought was a terrible quote for many years. <laughs> and I was like, why are you saying that, Dr. Angelo? You're pissing me off. Yeah. Um, but then I realized really, the, and she says, the, the cost is high, but the reward is great. And I think 
I think that's the thing, that I feel like I belong everywhere I go, no, no matter where it is or who I'm with, as long as I never betray myself. Mm. And the minute I become who you want me to be in order to fit in and make sure people like me is the moment I no longer belong anywhere. Mm. And that is hard. Yeah. I mean, that's a hard practice. That's an everyday practice. Wow. Yeah, because I can I can be whoever you want me to be like that. You're like a chameleon, you said. Oh, I can be totally like a chameleon. Like sometimes it's really funny because like I always, because I travel so much, I have all these miles. I always sit in business class and I'm normally the, the only woman in business class. Uh -huh. um, every now and then there's one other maybe, which is a conversation we should be having too. <laughs> sure. Um, but it doesn't matter what dude sits next to me. Like I can talk about whatever that person like, and it's so funny because we'll talk about sports usually first, or football, or we'll talk about politics, and he'll say, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, I study vulnerability and shame. Oh, well, huh, well, I'm gonna play some Angry Birds, uh, <laughs> you know, and right that moment, like, I can right. just, and it's, it's not that I know everything about everything, it's just, so you're saying most men don't want to chime in and, and learn more about that? No, that's usually, if I want to go to sleep, I'm like, I'm a shame researcher. What do you do? And you're like, okay. Right, um, right. But I think I can be anything. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, you're adaptable. I'm yeah. adaptable. And yeah. adaptable is great because anyone that comes to my home or here to work, I can make you feel comfortable. Of course. But then if I get so adaptable that my goal, my intention of adapting is to make sure you like me, mm -hmm. then that's when I betray myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What would you say is the time in your life you've been the most alone? High school. Just the whole journey? Yeah, it just sucked. It does suck. It does. And you know, my daughter just graduated from high school <laughs> and she had this amazing experience. Mm. You know, just, just incredible experience. And um, it was so healing to watch. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and I think it happened because she, I think she had the confidence to put herself out there and she, you know, student council president and the, you know, that kind. I think because we have a rule at our house that no matter what, you belong here. Mm. No matter how goofy, awkward, afraid, wrong, it doesn't matter, you belong here. And so I think when we give our kids a platform like that at home, it gives them the courage to take risks outside of home. Mm. Does that make sense? Because they feel safe coming back. No matter yeah. what happens, they yeah. always have a place to come home to. Yeah, and I grew up in a house where it was very chaotic. I'm the oldest of four. And fitting in and being cool was the most important thing. So I think without that pressure, I probably would have never tried out for that drill team. Um, but in, mm. in, my, in my world growing up, you only did two things. You were a cheerleader or you were on the drill team and Preferably you married a running back or a quarterback. I mean, right. that was the way it went. Right. Um, and so for me, I probably would have been like president of the French club. You know, or I would have been in debate or those kind of the things. newspaper. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, photographer of the yearbook. Yeah. Um, but those things did not have a lot of value. Really? Not, no. Your parents didn't instill that as something credible or worthwhile? No, it's just I, cool was the number one mm. value at home. Cool lots of friends, popular, yeah. and that just wasn't my, I wasn't that thing. Mm. You know, I was, yeah, I wasn't. And so what I did is I just 
started drinking, smoking weed, hanging out with, you know, I found, I found a place to be, you know, cool. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that just goes bad fast. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had a conversation with your parents about this? Oh yeah, we've talked about all of it. You have? Yeah. You've let it go, you've processed it all. Or... Oh yeah, because they, you know, they read my books as uh-huh. I write them and they're, sure. you know, they're like, shit, this is exactly what every parent wants a child who grows up to be a shame researcher. Um, But no, they just, that's the miracle of my parents. Like my parents, they've taught me the best thing about parenting that anyone I think could ever know, which is it doesn't end when your kids leave. Mm. Like they keep growing and exploring and um, learn, you know, and however hard it was for me not being able to be, you know, we did not do vulnerability growing up. Really? No, 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 no. Like, yeah, like our family motto was literally lock and load, like mm. get ready, you know, family trips, you're in the car for five hours. That's all six of us. You really have to go to the bathroom, but the rest stop is on the other side of the highway. We're not pulling over, like hold suck it. it up, hold yeah. it. Like we were tough. We were tough. Mm. Like we'd fall down and get hurt. You know, my dad would say like, I got bigger scratches than that on my eyeball. You know, like, <laughs> right, you know, right. yeah, like we were tough. And so, mm. and we were, and we were taught to outrun vulnerability. We were taught to suck it up, soldier yeah. on, get her done. Yeah. And so however hard that was for me growing up, imagine what it was like for my parents in the 50s. Mm. You know, my dad, who was the youngest of six, his dad died when he was 16, you know. Um, was he able to process that or no? No, he just did the next thing you do. Right. Played football, played college ball. Yeah. Um, my mom, who's my grandmother, who I named my daughter after, was an alcoholic. And she was drunk every other day of my mom's life. Wow. But she was the most amazing person in the world. But everyone knew she was an alcoholic, so my mom wasn't allowed to have friends at, our, at her house growing up. Because it was the 50s, and she was divorced. Mm. You know? And so my mom became the head of the drill team and the, the, you know, the valedictorian. And, and so however hard it was for me growing up, having to try to outrun vulnerability. It was a million times harder on my parents. Yeah. And they didn't, they did what they knew how to do. And they loved us as much as they could love us with the tools they had. And so I don't have, I think the hard part comes from people that I've interviewed my whole life where the parents don't grow and change. And they yeah. see anything a child trying to do differently as criticism of what they did as opposed to my parents who lean in and say, tell me more about that. Mm. Tell, I have a funny story. We hear a funny story about sure. my dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's great. So we do a lot of choice theory with my daughter and my son. And so choice, my husband's a pediatrician. Okay. So like we, we know a lot about child development from our, just from school. Right. And so when, our, when Ellen was little, we used to do this thing where we would say, um, you know, you have two choices. Like Lewis, you have two choices. You can either hand me the water, I'm gonna have to take it from you. What uh. is your choice? So that if you decide not to hand it to me and I have to take it, it's not my choice. fault. That, that was, was your choice, choice. Yeah, right? Yeah. And so one, one night I was talking to Ellen and we were at my dad's house in San Antonio and I was like, Ellie, you need to turn off Door of the Explorer. It's time to go to bed. And she's like, mm-mm. And I said, Ellen, you have two choices. You can get up and turn off the TV or I'm gonna get it up and turn it off for you. And if I have to get up and you know turn off the TV, you're gonna lose privileges to watch it tomorrow. And that's your choice. Uh, yeah, that's your choice. So yeah. do you, you know, and I would hate that for you, but mm. that will be your choice. 
And my dad was sitting in the recliner next to me. And he's like, ah, damn, sis, what are you raising, a hostage negotiator? <laughs> and I was like, dad. And he's like, seriously, Brene? We had four of y'all. We didn't have time for that. Yeah. So the next day I come home. I'm visiting friends in San Antonio. And he's watching Ellen. And he's in the driveway. It's like 110 degrees in San Antonio. And he's sweating. He's like, Ellen, you have two choices. You can either put the bicycle up or I'm going to have to put it up for you. And the second one's a dumbass choice. So I was like, wow, you're so close. You're getting there. <laughs> but you're getting there. But you're getting there. My parents are amazing in that way that, like, they're learning and changing. So yeah, yeah. I think it's harder when parents say, I'm done. What you got was what you got. Mm -hmm. No apologies, no change, take no amends. Take it or leave it. Yeah. And if you do it differently with your own kids, you're a sucker. Wow. And I think we see that a lot. Yeah, we do. I mean, what should parents be learning about how they can grow? I mean, how can they start to be aware? Because I think it starts with being aware. Yeah, for sure. Of what they know and what they don't know and being receptive to learning something different, which is really hard to do. I think it's once hard. you've had these habits for so long. Uh, so that's the first thing. And I want to dive into the lack of vulnerability with what's happening in Charlottesville right now as well. Because yeah. I know you did something on that this morning. So. I guess, how can parents listen to this and be aware and be willing to move forward in a different way of learning something new when they're so stuck in their ways, potentially, that it's worked for them to this point to get to where they're at? One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host you know i think i believe this with my my whole heart mm -hmm. i believe that 99.9 percent .9 of parents are truly waking up every day and doing the very best they can with what they have yeah um, I don't think there are a lot of parents who wake up and maliciously try to screw up their kids or hurt their kids or belittle or shame their kids. Um, I think we're doing the best we can with what we have. And so I think to let go of the idea that if I have done something that I could have done better or that I could learn from, that I have to just come down. People defend their parenting mm -hmm. like they're defending their lives <clears throat> because it's such a shame minefield. Yeah. You know, I mean, and a great example is the work you're doing around men and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you the number of fathers and the hundreds, if not thousands of fathers I've interviewed that said, I shamed my son every time he was vulnerable. Yeah. I put him down. I made fun of them. I hit him <laughs> every time he was vulnerable. And now I look back and I know it's because that's the way I was raised or I was afraid he'd be soft and get hurt at school or you know whatever the thing is. And so I think for parents, it's about understanding, giving yourself permission to not have been, I'm not perfect. Like, you know, like I've never not been a researcher and a parent. My husband's yeah. a pediatrician. Our kids will be in therapy. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> and the reason why I think that'll be so successful is there's only two kind of kids you raise, kids who will ask for help when they need it or kids who won't. And that's as good as it gets is to raise a kid who'll ask for help. 
Yeah, I never asked for help. Yeah. I was always suffering inside. Yeah, right. And I always felt shameful, guilty. Right. And I just, my way of asking was being angry, resentful, mad, hitting people in sports yeah. or outside of sports because that's all I knew. In this next section, best-selling author Sarah Jakes Roberts talks about dealing with trauma and the importance of advocating for yourself. What is the greatest trauma that you're still dealing with the most? Mm. That you maybe started the healing process and you've improved, but you're like, that still triggers me. Maybe I'm not slamming cars into someone, but it's still (laughs) like, that doesn't feel good. You know, I don't know that I have a certain incident that triggers Mm -hmm. me, but I think the residue of not being able to defend myself. Emotionally, spiritually, physically. First of all, you better ask these questions. Um, Um, I'm trying to get clarity I here. think emotionally, uh-huh. because uh, I think that the residue of that shows up in my life and I have to advocate for my feelings. Mm. Because when I got pregnant, I felt like I, di- I felt like I did something wrong, okay? And this is not just something wrong in church, right? Because if you do something wrong in church, there's another community that will embrace you. Right. When you're a teen mom, there's not another community that's like, oh, we love teen mom, you know what I mean? Like, oh, we please have another baby, we love this, you know? Right. And so I didn't have anywhere to go in the world that wouldn't mm. judge me or in the church that wouldn't judge me. And because this was something I willfully did, no one took advantage of me, right. I felt like, well, I can't be hurt over this. I can't be broken over this. I have to let everyone else grieve. And I just have to sit here with my feelings. But I was hurt. I was sad. I was disappointed. And so now, even as a woman, I have to learn to advocate for my right to have feelings, even if I've done something wrong. Yeah. And even if it was your decision. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's hard at 13 to develop the emotional capacity to ex- to express and feel in a healthy way. Yeah, I did. You don't have those tools. And then you have to stop, right? Because when you're now a parent, you're not able, like, because I assume, I don't know, I've never been 13 and not had a child, but I assume somewhere between 13 and adulthood, you learn how to get those tools. I feel like I emotionally shut down wow. at 13 and have had to work to open up again. Do you feel like you're a lot more open now? I am. <laughs> like, my I heart is open. I don't know I how love I feel everyone. about it, though. Um, really? The other day I had to break up. I have a feelings wheel, you know. Feelings wheel. A feelings wheel. Wheel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What it's does a that wheel, mean? and it's got Happy. like happies. <laughs> and then Which once one you pick one, it t- shows you all of these different because uh, my emotional vocabulary is pretty limited. And so, like the other day, I felt happy, but I didn't know like why or what. And then I had to follow my will, and then it, the will to happy led me to like value and respected Mm. which were very foreign for me like to have words that that I feel valued especially after struggling with my worth was like really interesting my initial reaction was like I don't want to feel that and then I was like you don't want to feel valued that's that was my fear-based initial response which I think is the residue of trauma throwing the wall up but then I had to work to say no this is your life this is your truth a lot like I'm still coaching myself emotionally so when you felt valued, it felt foreign. Yeah, for sure. Not that I have never felt valued before, right. but I've never been able to connect what I was feeling with the idea mm. of being valued. When do you feel the most valued? When my husband talks to me. Yes. When he talks to you about anything, when he just, when he just when talks he just to you. When he just looks at me, when he just mm. talks to me, when he just says, 
whatever to me. And how have you learned to develop your own self-worth regardless of what he does or your kids do or your parent, you know, how have you done that yourself? So in between, so I got divorced uh-huh. and I moved back home with my parents. He's, he didn't kill him? No. Oh, okay. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. No, everything worked out fine. I didn't go to prison. Oh, wow. Everything, yeah. So you kept I, your kids. I kept my children, wow. you know. I moved back home with my parents and I started rebuilding from there, really from the inside out. And then, um, you know, I fell in love with myself. Like, I because I think mm-hmm. I was so, so just uninterested in who I'd become that when I finally got out of that marriage, I started confronting my own poison. And I was so in love with myself and with my life and with my children. And we, I was able to get a house by myself. And so like I'm a, I, I ended up getting to that place I wanted to be where I was like a good mom and taking mm. care of my children. And I was happy with myself and I was taking care of my health and my body. And so I felt so valued by myself then right. that when my husband came in, he really just echoed what I was already saying about myself. Mm-hmm. And so I think that me coming to that place on my own had a lot to do with self-forgiveness and then beginning to work towards a life that felt true to my potential and uh, my dreams. How did you get the poison out? <laughs> um, I think the first thing is acknowledging that it was there. Because oh, you weren't really acknowledging like this is what happened. Right. Blocking it and disassociating. Exactly. So now what did that process look like? Okay, I've lived this life up yeah. until now. What is the conversation that you had with yourself? Did you do some journaling? Were you just praying and connecting to God? Were you talking to your parents? Like, what was happening? I did a lot of journaling. Mm -hmm. I started blogging. Um, I let the poison speak. Isn't it interesting when we hold our shame in, the poison just grows and expands? Yeah. It's like the moment we share our shame, whether it be to ourselves, written down to a friend or whatever, it's, we release it. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. I, st- really? I, I gave the poison a voice. And what, was, I, what was the voice? Um, okay, so it said, like, I, you're worthless, like, you're nasty, you're, you're never going to have purpose, no one will ever want you, no one will ever be proud of you. Like, I let the poison speak. These were my wow. thoughts 24-7. These were my thoughts 24-7. From 13 to 23, that's 10 years of poison. You kept saying to yourself, I'm worthless. No one's ever yeah, going to value I, me. No one's going to love me. I never, this idea of like, oh, I'm proud of you. Like, I never had thoughts that were positive towards really? myself. Mm-mm. Never. My dad would say, you're smart. And I would instantly reject it because I'm like, smart girls don't get pregnant. Mm. You know, like. If I'm I just, smart, why'd I do this? Exactly. Damn. So when I finally started letting it speak, I, um. I came to this place where I had to ask myself, like, how long are we going to receive this as truth? And then I would blog it. I would put those words out like no one knew that I was pregnant, but I would like or that I'd gotten pregnant at the time. Of course, people know now, but I would just like write all of these things. And then at the end of this blog, I would kind of like talk to myself as if a friend was talking to me. Mm. And um, it was through that process that I had something to say back to the poison. And then it went from whispering it back to the poison to raising my voice and raising my voice until the poison had to shut up because faith was speaking. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Wait a minute. So, <sighs> so for ten years, yeah, your self talk was a poison based. Yeah, the foundation was not good enough. You don't matter. You're not valued. You're not smart. All these things. Yeah. How important is self talk for you now in order to develop and increase self worth? Well, okay, so. You know, in scripture, it talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yes. The renewing of your mind is what took place in that moment. Mm. And so as my mind has been renewed, I have been transformed. And in that transformation, it's why the other day when I felt like valued and I initially rejected, I let my renewed mind mm. say, instead, receive this, allow it to penetrate the parts of your life that have never heard this before mm. or wasn't aware enough to receive it. And so um, Mary J. Blige says once that, you know, she doesn't have children because she needed to parent herself. And I feel like in many ways, the way that I feel mm. like I'm talking to myself in some instances is me parenting myself it's so funny I don't have my phone on me but on my phone I've been working with a, a coach and a, a spiritual therapist right now who's been uh, telling me to have a photo of my childhood self on my phone like six or seven years old mm -hmm. so I've got a photo on my phone I'll show you afterwards and it's for me whenever I feel that trigger coming in to like reparent myself yeah and reconnect and be like, hey, you're safe. Yeah. It's okay. Like, yeah. you don't have to be afraid of this. You don't have to react. Yeah. You can let that go. Yeah. I got your back. You know, these things. And I think we we haven't learned these tools on how to reparent ourselves. Yeah. It's challenging. And I can only imagine having kids and not having the tools to parent ourselves and then trying to parent someone else. For sure. Like, triggers must just be coming up all day long. And I feel like, I mean, I will, I have two things. I don't know that previous generations had the tools at all at all at all Just like all trigger reaction anger for sure fear yeah and i think because of you know whether you've got toxic masculinity or the rise of women in the corporate environment mm -hmm. like there are so many we had so many different things to worry about that like how you feel like right. girl, child please we'll talk about We're that later right, right, now. right yeah. exactly <laughs> and so um you know that didn't happen for the previous generations but what i will say is this I do think no matter how great you've had parenting in your life, that there's an ache inside of all of us. Now, it could be something minor like a headache or it could be mm. a missing leg, depending mm. on what you've gone through in life. Emotionally. Yeah, yeah, in some way. And so I think to come to terms with the fact that there is going to be a part of me, and even for me as a parent, there's going to be a part of my children that I just don't see, that I just don't see. I'm going to give this 100% but there's still going to be moments life is still mm. going to have to suck them in mm -hmm. and in the process of doing that they may come out wounded and this is part of what i thought even when i was a single mother is like so my job is not to protect them from harm i'm going to do the best that i can but i realize that they are going to have some harm right they're going to school they're going to be around people and peers and who knows what will happen in that environment my role is to show them how to recover from harm That's how so to true. heal in this section best-selling author mel robbins talks about how to better understand your behavioral patterns and not self-sabotage how do we learn to not self-sabotage the good things that come to us. So give me an example. Like how have you self-sabotaged things in your life? Um, I can't think of a good answer. I don't think I really do that that much, but I know <laughs> I know that other people do, and it's a big issue. 
Um, maybe I'm trying to think. Okay, so I'll tell you. But if people get into like, it, a good this, relationship, this is a really like, big answer, though. Yeah, you ready? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so now let's detour into the lane. We talked about this on the last time I was on. But let's detour into the lane of anxiety, of patterns and trauma, uh-huh. and talk about why people self-sabotage. Yes. People don't self-sabotage intentionally. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, today, I'm going to screw up my life. Right. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drink myself on the ground. I'm going to cheat on my wife. I'm going to embezzle for my company. Mm. I'm going to lie to everybody about how I'm actually feeling. I'm going to stop taking my meds. I'm going to kick the dog. Like, nobody does that. What happens is people get triggered. And they react. And then they fall into old patterns. Mm -hmm. And so what happens, I believe, in relationships in particular, or jobs, where you're like, this time it's going to be different is it's different for the first three to six months when it's novel Mm -hmm. and when you're intentional and when everything counts. But then when you gotta face yourself. Then when it becomes (laughs) like part of your life, you get lazy and you slip into old patterns. Or when the stakes get really high. Let's say you're somebody who had a parent die early or your dad abandoned the family and you're scared to love somebody. And so you fall deeply for somebody. And then what gets triggered is this tremendous fear that they're going to leave. Yeah. Because that's your lived experience. And if you go back to what you did as a child to cope with that fear that somebody's going to leave, that's the exact pattern that you will repeat as an adult. Mm -hmm. The only way to end this or to try to get your arms around it is to attack it holistically because so much of this happens at the subconscious level and it also it gets triggered first by your nervous system and yeah. you're not even aware of it. Right. And so there's a tool that I uh, talk about in this book called High Five in Your Heart. Your and heart. Your heart, yep. So you, you uh, what you do, and, and, and I started doing this because I was having this incredible uh, response from past trauma happen mm. when the pandemic hit. So when the pandemic hit, uh, I started waking up feeling like something was terribly wrong. And I would, it would start my ankles and it would flood up my legs and go all the way up my body. And I would feel this wave come up. My immediate thought is something's wrong. Mm. And my heart would start to race and I'd feel this full on like anxiety response. And I know what that is now. So I now know that the anxiety response of waking up, which so many people do, this is really actually very, very common. People wake up anxious. Yes, feeling like they're in trouble, or something's wrong, Mm. or something's about to go wrong. Yeah, that's not good. Well, if you grew up in a chaotic household. That's normal. Yep, if you had a caregiver that gave you the silent treatment, or had mental illness, or had a drinking problem, if there was abuse in your house, yep, you did wake up. Anxious. Yeah, because your anxiety, by the way, was trying to protect you. It Mm -hmm. was putting you in a state of being alert so that you were ready in case something happened. But for a ton of us, Lewis, we've lived our whole lives with a dysregulated nervous system. That's what I've come to learn during the pandemic, that I have literally lived since probably the fourth grade with my nervous system never truly resetting back to a calm resting state. Mm. And so 
I started to wake up every morning in the pandemic, like so many people did. But and I've always kind of had this sort of wake up and feeling like something's wrong. Like, uh oh, I didn't, you know, Chris is mad. Like my first yeah. thing is like, Chris is already up. He's meditating. He's angry that I've slept 15 minutes longer than him. Like it's so stupid. You know, this is how we torture ourselves. <laughs> but during the pandemic, it was like a full-on anxiety response. And so I started doing this thing where I would put my hands on my heart, like mm -hmm. right in the center of my chest. I got yep. big mitts just like you, so yes. you can kind of hit the whole thing. Take a deep breath, and then I would say, I'm okay, I'm safe, I'm loved. Mm -hmm. If you can say those things, in this moment it's true. You are okay, mm -hmm. you are safe, and you are loved, whether you're waking up in a mansion or a homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. And what would happen as I was doing this, high-fiving my heart, is you're pressing on the vagus nerve. Like, that's what you're actually toning. That's the same thing that uh, Wim Hof is teaching with the ice bath. You're mm -hmm. toning your vagus nerve. And what the vagus nerve is, as you very well know, because you talk about it on the show, is it's the switch between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. fight or flight versus rest. So if you ever find yourself in a stressful state, put your, give your heart a high-five. Put your hands on your heart, go, I'm okay. I'm safe, I'm loved. Repeat it 111 times if you need to. What you'll yeah. feel is you'll feel your nervous system start to settle. You'll feel yourself come back into your body. You'll feel your mind slow down and you will literally take control of your nervous system. It is unbelievable. And it's also really important because, you know, I, in, in researching this book, I talked to, um, you know, the acclaimed Dr. Judy Willis, who's a, a incredible uh, neuroscientist and she explained something that I never knew, but it makes a lot of sense. If your nervous system is on edge, it's in a like alert state, you're dysregulated, it's impossible for your cognitive function of your brain to work. Mm. I can give you an example. If somebody were to bust in here with a gun and try to rob us, yeah, would it. you be able to do a math problem? No. No. Like just thinking safety. Yes, yeah. exactly. Save my life. I can't, I, I bet the majority of people actually walk around with a nervous system Ooh. that is on edge like that, particularly post-pandemic. Yeah. And for me, the reason why, I've actually linked it all the way back. So when I was in the fourth grade, I was molested while I was sleeping by an older kid. Wow. And in the um, kind of array of things that can happen in terms of sexual abuse, mine was very tame. Yeah. Like it was a one-time incident. It was mm. a kid who was slightly older than me. It was confusing, not scary. I just possum disassociated, don't even remember how it ended. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I didn't even remember it. And then I remembered it when I was 28 years old. And I believe that the reason why I have always woken up mm. in a state on edge is because of that incident. Since the fourth grade. Yes. Wow. And the thing is, Lewis, is that I, you know, the morning's a trigger. If you have that stored in your body, something happened to you, something happened to you, something's wrong, something's wrong, because something was wrong. And you don't have the tools, and no kid does, to smooth out your nervous system and heal the trauma, that trauma lives in your body. Yes. And so I believe most self-sabotaging behavior that people continue to repeat is nothing but stored trauma and your best ability to cope with it when it was happening. That's and why we sabotage. Yes, so I don't think it's intentional. I really don't. Like even a, a, a somebody who's diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, they don't 
know that they have that. Right. Like they're not intent. Like there's not. It's like such a program behavior. There's no. I'm gonna go do that. I'm I'm in love with this person. Let's go screw it up. Right. That's not what happens. And this is also why I'm telling you. I I I know I'm crazy passionate about this topic of this standing in front of the mirror and changing how you see yourself. If you don't get a hold of that story, I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. I screw everything up. I'm a bad person. I'm not good enough. Nothing works out for me. If you don't change that and start cheering yourself forward, mm-hmm. you will stay locked in these self-sabotaging patterns because you will act in a way that you believe it subconsciously or unconsciously. In this section, Emmy-nominated actress and award-winning producer Laverne Cox talks about the importance of turning up the brightness on your own light and owning your truth. Where do you think you'd be today uh, if you didn't start owning it and, and fully accepting and fully being vulnerable, I guess, 10, 11, 12 years ago? Where do you think you'd be now if you didn't do that? I don't know if I'd be alive. Wow. I honestly don't know if I'd even be, be here. Or if I were here, I'd be, I'd be deeply unhappy, lost, um, it's just, it's a scary thought, honestly. I mean, it just, it scares me because it just, it feels like, I think I was in such a, I was in a place where I would have sabotaged. I, if, if anything good came, I would have found a way to sabotage it. And so, I mean, it's kind of a miracle that I haven't like, you know, that like that, that I haven't like all the lovely, amazing things that have come in my life, I haven't sabotaged them. Because I think that I didn't, I don't think I thought I deserved it. I didn't think I, I don't think I thought that I was worthy. Really? Oh my God, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. I did not think that I deserved nice things because the whole world told me I didn't deserve nice things. And nice things, love. I mean, the love piece too is so deep when you feel like you are, I mean, shame, (laughs) Brene Brown defines shame as the intensely painful belief that one has about themselves, that they're unworthy of connection and belonging. Um, She says, guilt is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and shame is, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Deep sense, this deep feeling of unworthiness on a deep core level. Um, And yeah, I was there. And I, I, and and Lewis, I'm not there today. I feel a deep, I really, and this is a beautiful thing about quarantine too. I, I spent so much time in the beginning, particularly really delving deep spiritually and meditating and journaling and trying to get clear about what, what, what my, what lessons I'm supposed to learn from this. And I, I do, I do feel worthy of love. I do feel worthy of belonging, you know, mm. and, and that is a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I don't have a romantic partner in my life at the moment, which is actually good. <laughs> it's actually really good, it's honestly. Um, but I do feel worthy. And so then yeah. what are the challenges? And I've been thinking a lot about that. What, and a lot of it's just about health and like what the, the, the life that I want for myself going forward. You know, when you've achieved goals and you um, achieve things that you want to achieve, it's like, what's next, you know? And it's not about, you know, I certainly want to make more money and I certainly want to, you know, there's, material things it's not even material it's things like i want to own more property and i want you know Mm -hmm. things like that but it's like how do i want this next part of my life to how do i want to be in the world and what do Mm -hmm. i want to contribute and how do i want to step up more and be more present and a lot of it has to do with my having my health be 
really fully and securely in place so that I can step into this beautiful life. We're developing new projects and I have there's wonderful things on the horizon, but I have to be able to fully show up for them. Mm. And I think the lesson though, for everybody, everybody out there is that there are beautiful things on the horizon for everybody, but you have to be able to show up for it. It's waiting yeah. there. I really believe that everybody's here for a reason and that it is waiting for us, but we have to be able to align with that energy because it's all energy. We have to be able to align with the energy and the reason. And I think too, my life shifted when I started owning my transness, but it also was when I started understanding there was something bigger than me. A year after Candace Kane was on Dirty Sexy Money, I, 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 um, I made these postcards that said, Laverne Cox is the answer to all your transgender acting needs. And I sent it to wow. I sent the postcard to 500 agents. You're a and true marketer, directors. I love it. Um, um, right? I got the idea from this dude. I'd done a movie years earlier, this dude who was French. And he had been in New York for 25 years, but he kept his French accent. And all of his work was um, doing like French voiceover. He was uh, playing a French dude in the movie we were doing together. He did a lot of voiceover where he had the French accent. And he said, I forgot his name, but he said, um, Bob, your French connection. He's the answer to all your French acting needs. So I totally wow. stole so that from him. So I marketed myself as a trans actor, which is, I never would have done that before Candace Kane. But then that led to me doing this reality show called I Want to Work for Diddy in 2008. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I did it was because, well, the day before I, uh, my final interview for I Want to Work for Diddy, I was walking um, in my neighborhood in Midtown Manhattan, and I was harassed by a group of, of Black guys on the street, which is part of my daily life, right? I got harassed pretty much every day. But Har- day harassed by, I mean, like, bullying or more like sexually harassment? It was, or- I, well, it often would start with being catcalled, where, where the guys would be like, hey, mama, you looking sexy today. And then one of the guys would realize I'm trans and say, oh, that's a man and misgender me. And then... That was, I mean, that was just my life. That was like, sure. I, I, I armored up for that living in New yeah, York. Yeah, yeah. But this particular day, one of the guys kicked me. And so uh-uh. that was like, you know, I called the police. <laughs> there was a police Dang. report, whatever. Um, they didn't find the guys. But I like went into this nearby store, called the police, terrified. By the time the police got there, the guys had left gone. the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, filed the report. And then the next day was my final interview for I Want to Work for Diddy. And I thought, how powerful it could potentially be to have this hip hop mogul, uh, P Diddy, sort of embrace me on this, his reality show to possibly be his assistant. And maybe that could make some sort of change or inroads in the black community that was mostly harassing me. And I don't think black folks are more transphobic than anyone else, but I think we harass people that we see like you know crime you know black on black crime is this myth basically because you know, white people like commit crimes against other white people because they're in proximity with them and black people are in proximity with other black people and so the crimes happen there so that but but the i want to work for diddy moment was me choosing to do something that was bigger than me doing a reality show at the time my brother didn't think i should do it all my friends were like they're gonna because you were an artist you're an artist you're an actor you're not an artist i'm an actor but also in 2008 everything this is 2008 everything about trans people for the most part except candace cannon dirty sexy money was exploitative it was like spectacle it was like let's humiliate the trans person and everyone thought that that's what they were going to do to me on that show and i and i remember saying in my final interview to the um, executives i'm like i don't want to be exploited i don't want this to be you know a spectacle i'm doing this because i want to make a statement and to generate some kind of acceptance. And I was assured by the producers that, that that's not what they wanted to do. That's not what Diddy wanted to do. And it turned out really well, but the lesson, the long story short, from the lesson from that is to be of service. 
Mm. The lesson from that is that when, when I was of service, that ended up going pretty well. I ended up getting my own show out of it. This, that show wasn't a success. I needed to stop doing reality TV, wasn't my thing. <laughs> but the lesson was to be of service. Mm. And then, so owning my transness and then being of service were the two things that really shifted everything in my life. And the shift felt like all of a sudden it, the alignment happened, right? Because we, we're, we're every, everybody I think in their lives, are, if, if you are lucky, you're gonna, something, a shift is gonna happen and you're gonna feel in alignment with an energy that's bigger than you. And that it's gonna be tied to purpose. It's gonna be tied to the reason you're here. And that is a beautiful thing. And I think that is the thing. I really believe that's waiting for everybody. I really do. Mm. And everybody's not meant to sort of, you know, be on television and produce shows or whatever. We're all here for something different. But I think when we can align and with, with that energy, and sometimes it takes a minute. I mean, honestly, like the Orange, Orange is New Black didn't happen until I was 40 years old. And I was about that's to- crazy, be- yeah. I was about to give up acting, actually, because that was the year I got the eviction notice and I was in student loan debt and credit wow. card debt. And I was like, okay, girl, you are 40. Who are you? Maybe trans. this acting thing isn't for you anymore. You're trans. Right? Yeah, I mean, at the time, there, there had never been a trans person with a major acting career in the United States. So I'm like, okay, girl, you're delusional. You, you gave it a good shot. I mean, you're 40. Yeah, you get 20 you years of this, yeah. You try, girl. Let's. Let's get it together. So I bought GRE study materials. Wow. I was looking into grad schools. I was going to go to grad school and like I was thinking journalism, women's studies. I was like, I don't know what. I hadn't figured it out yet, but I was li- trying to figure out grad school. And then the Orange audition happened and um, I didn't go to grad school. But the fun thing about that though is that literally four years after I booked Orange is the New Black, thought I was going to go to grad school, but didn't. I got an honorary doctorate from the new school. Wow, that's great. <laughs> so I, you know, grad school was just, you know, acting hey, stardom. That's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing what you've accomplished. And I'm curious what, I've got a few final questions for you. I want to, sure. I could talk to you for hours, but this is, um, what advice would you, because I have a, I think I mentioned to you a few years ago that I have a family member who I love deeply, who is gender nonconforming mm-hmm. and they are going through, and have been going through a challenging time in the last couple of years, just finished up college. And I'm just curious your advice to your younger self who maybe was confused or struggling, feeling unsure of yourself to people who are afraid to come out uh, as gay, bisexual, people who are afraid to step into being trans, you know, fully publicly, all these different things that people have shame around. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to those individuals today? Oh, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And I think that like, it can, you can, it can feel isolating and alone. And I think the beautiful thing about 2020 is that we can, we can go online. It's not the same as having that friend in real life, but online there's support groups that you're not alone. And I think one can feel alone when you're going through that. Even in 2020, you can feel alone. There, you're not. There's support groups online. There's an, a local LGBTQ center in most cities, most major cities in the United States anyway, that you can go and find find a community. You can go and find somebody who is like you or who can support you and accept you. If you can't find somebody who's like you because everybody's different, you can find somebody who can see, will see you and love you. And until you do that, you can, you, you can start know, knowing for sure inside, there's a light inside you. I, you know, 
wherever I go, I try to remind trans people that we are anointed, that in indigenous cultures all over the world, there were sacred traditions of third genders, fourth genders, where we were revered members of the culture. If you, in India, we were called Hydra, Native American um, cultures here in the United States, um, um, Two Spirits, um, in Philippines, all over the world, indigenous cultures all over the world, trans people, what we would understand as trans people held a sacred place. You, in, in India, you would not get married or without you know, the blessing of a hijra, or you wouldn't have your baby christened without you know, the blessing of a hijra. So we are sacred, we are anointed, and we just must step into that. We just must step into that and know this inside. Uh. I think through all the years of confusion and messiness that I had, there was something in me that was like, so I knew I was here for something bigger than all of that. And there is a light in there that, that we all have. And we, the, the work is to turn up the light. Ooh. The work is to not let it be dimmed by anything, but actually to turn up the brightness on the light and shine, shine, shine. That, that, is, that is the thing. And as you shine that light. Some people will be blinded by it. Some people cannot take the light. They can't, and that's fine. But, the, but you'll attract the people who can. Mm. And I think that's it's a deep thing too. And I have to remind myself of that as I'm single and dating and just, you know, I'm Laverne Cox and it's like very challenging dating. And I, but I know, I'm sitting here knowing how fabulous I am. <laughs> you know, I, I know how fabulous I am. I know how sexy I am. I know, all the things I have to offer. I, I can say that with such certainty now. And so what I know is that everybody can't take the light. And honey, if you can't take this light, then you, you're not right. <laughs> you're not right. <laughs> like and that. so That should be you know, on your website. If you can't take the light, you're not right. But no, but then, but, but when, but, but that, that doesn't mean I'm going to change the light. I'm going to dim, I'm not going to dim my light. Mm. I'm not going to try to put on a mask to be somebody else. We're just going to, if the but right, we're going to attract the right energy energetically. And I think people need to know, not to cut, sorry to cut you off there, but to, no, no. to add to that, I think people need to know that when, sometimes when you step into your light and you turn it on, you turn on who you are, you're going to, uh, some people are going to flock to you and you're going to burn a lot of people. They're going to want to go away from you, right? Some people yeah. can't take that. Because light they're not in their light. And, and, and that's what makes me so sad. I mean, I've, I've, I've been meeting men and I just, and it's, I think, What's made me really sad about what's going on with a lot of, as I date or whatever, is that they, they're not in their light. They're not in their, they're brilliant. And so then it's like, they can't, this is, the, they can't receive it. Yeah. And it's, that's sad for them. Yeah. <laughs> not sad for me. <laughs> Woo, <hallelujah>. Exactly. <laughs> but I think, I think the, you need, people need to be aware that when you step into that light and who you are, it might be free. It, it'll go freeing, but then you might lose a lot of people around you. Yeah. The people and you were performing for and wearing a mask for and having an armor for liked you for that. They don't like you for who you truly are. Yeah. And you're going to lose friends, potentially family members at certain times. Hopefully they come back around, but you've got to be prepared. And that's what I think is scary for a lot of people, the social pressure of losing friendships, family members, yeah. and, and that pain with that, Pain is necessary to become a butterfly. You're we about to, to die be before you can fly. The, the quest for true belonging is being willing to go it alone. And um, <sighs> Brene Brown, Brave in the Wilderness, honey, she, um, she starts off Brave in the Wilderness with the Maya Angelou quote, I belong everywhere and no, pl I belong everywhere and no place, no place at all. 
something like that. Basically, but the, but the Maya Angelou quote is basically about belonging everywhere and no place, but I belong to myself. Ooh, that snap. I belong to myself. Yeah. That's amazing. And that is the, and when you can truly belong to yourself, you can stand alone. You, it's okay to be in the truth and the courage of your convictions because you belong to yourself. Yeah. And we all need belonging as human beings, but that's scary. Everybody's not super enough for that. Yeah. Because if we don't truly believe in ourselves, we need the approval of other people to believe in us. And when we fully believe in ourselves and accept who we are and lean into that, we may lose the approval of everyone around us and we need to be ready to stand yeah. alone like that until you Absolutely. can attract the right people, which might take time. Yeah. And this is a, this oh, yeah. is a sermon right here. Laverne, I love this. Isn't uh, that beautiful though? I mean, the last thing I'll say is that, isn't it beautiful though, to, to let go of the things that don't serve us. I think it's beautiful when those people drop out of our lives. It's really beautiful. It's like that. Cause that, that this dead weight, it's it keeping me from, it's keeping me from flying. Pur purge it. Yeah. Purge what you don't need. Here, Marie Forleo, best-selling author and entrepreneur, talks about why putting so much pressure on yourself is the wrong way to become successful. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in the last decade for you? That things, first of all, keep getting better. Mm. I think in our society, especially as it relates to, um, you know, as you get older, at least in my family, there was mm. a lot of kind of cultural expectations like, oh, over this age, it kind of starts going down or you know what I mean? You're kind of, you peak when you're young and that's when all the good stuff happens. And for me, I feel like it keeps getting better. And I love that the best years are still ahead of me mm. and that all the stuff that mm. I've been through, there's like all of these exciting new possibilities. So that's one of the biggest lessons. And I think the other one is that I don't have to stress as hard. like. As a human being, I have a really strong work ethic, mm -hmm. but I also tend to put a lot of pressure on myself. And the other lesson I've learned is that I don't need to do that, that the work actually gets done more joyfully and more creatively yeah. if I don't add on that additional layer of pressure and stress. Why do you pressure yourself? I have really high expectations. I want to take care of my team. I want to take care of my family. Mm -hmm. I want to do right by my customers. Like with this book, I wanted to do right by my publishing partners. Um, and I always feel a sense of responsibility to make sure that I'm taking care of people. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> embedded in that, I have historically put a ton of pressure on myself to make sure you know that the buck stops with, stops with me. Yeah. Um, but I think recently, it's been really great to see how awesome it is to collaborate with people who are like, girl, I got this. Like, you're good, you go do your thing, I'll do my thing, and we'll create something together that's magic. And I've been like, this don't, is amazing. Yeah, don't stress about it, yeah. Yeah. What's been the biggest challenge in the last 10 years? I think the biggest challenge for me in the past decade, that's a good question. So you started um, Marie TV, what, eight, nine years ago, eight years ago? Nine. Yeah, so to put this all in context, so I've been doing what I've been doing for 20 years now. Yeah. So creating free content via email mm -hmm. back starting in like 2000, 2001, mm -hmm. which seems like crazy, insane. Then um, blogging, mm -hmm. and then I got Kuma in 2009. Kuma's my dog, my toy Australian sweet Shepherd. He's a sweet little pup. And here's the thing, when we first got him as a puppy and I was training him along with Josh, I didn't have time to write You're as training many. Training Josh? No, <laughs> training Kuma along with Josh. Yeah. Josh knew what he was doing. I was just like, what do I do with a puppy? Yeah. Um, 
I didn't have as much time to write blog posts, and so I just started opening my webcam on my MacBook mm. Pro and talking right into the camera. I remember those early videos. Yeah, of yours. they're still on the site. Yeah, and so. Marie TV was actually started not because I had some big vision for like a show that I wanted to do. It was actually because I didn't have much time because I had a really cute new puppy and I needed to get consistent content out and I felt much more comfortable and it was faster to talk into my webcam mm -hmm. than it was to construct a blog wow. post. So that's how Marie TV started back in like 2009 slash 2010. It's been almost 10 years. It'd be 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So the, I think one of the challenges of the past decade has just been to continue to stay really present with all of the work while continuing to grow the company, like making sure that folks on the team have the support that they need, making sure that we're attracting the right talent, mm -hmm. people that have the right skills, uh, the right culture fit, and just you know keeping all those plates in the air. Yeah. And then of course still having a life. And making sure my relationship, you know, stays on track. How do you stay uh, on track with a connected, loving relationship as a female entrepreneur when you're putting so much energy into your business yeah. and the culture and the team and your customers? And I made so many mistakes. I mean, mm. let's just be real. Like I, I talk about this, and I've told this story. Like. Um, I worked so hard to get my business off the ground and I was often working seven days a week, yeah. you know, not just coaching, like that was a portion of what I did, but to keep a roof over my head, it was bartending, it was waiting tables, it was like being a personal assistant, cleaning mm -hmm. people's toilets, whatever I needed to do mm -hmm. in order to pay my rent, you know, put food on the table right. and actually continue to grow the business. So I basically developed a habit of working nonstop. And Before one, Marie TV. Oh yeah, 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 like getting the business off the ground. Like yeah, yeah. I worked side you were like gigs. Like a fitness coach, you did like dance instruction, you did everything. I was yeah. a Nike Elite dance athlete. I you know taught anywhere from like three to seven classes a week at Crunch Fitness. Some of them were choreographed, some of them were basic fitness. I had the coaching clients, I was doing the content, wow. and I was bartending and waiting tables. So I had developed this habit of nonstop work because that was what was necessary at that time. In New York. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as Josh and I, you know, got together and eventually when I let go of the bartending and the waiting tables and even the dance and fitness as a revenue stream, I didn't let go of the habit of working nonstop. And that created some real problems in the relationship where it was to the point that him and I had been together for seven years and never taken a vacation together. Wow. Like we had traveled because either he had something for his work or I had something for my work, but it was always work related so it wasn't actual just together time just him and i and our relationship was almost over like he was kind of done with me wow because you were just i want to work i got to build my business you don't understand me this is my dream i was operating too out of a lot of scarcity and a lot of just mm. habit like feeling like if i didn't work constantly that it was all going to fall apart mm. And so there were other things mixed in there mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah. You know, there were other layers of just life pressures from all these different ends. But that was like a mm -hmm. definite, a critical so piece. Yeah, yes, yes, son. Oh yeah. And, so yeah. I, my stepson Zane came into my life when he was seven. So the year that Josh and I kind of, you know, one of the times we've had many bumps along the road. We've mm -hmm. been together for sixteen years. Any couple that's been together that long, it's it's not all unicorns not and perfect. rainbows. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Relationship are so difficult but at that particular juncture Zane was going off to college which that was a really big thing 
in terms of Josh processing that, you know, having your kid go off after you've raised them and then me working all the time. There was this confluence of mm. stressors that put us in couples therapy and I had to really change a lot about how I was living, what I was believing, and really putting things back into perspective, which, you know, yeah. saved our relationship. What were you believing? Well, I was believing that if I didn't work constantly, that I wasn't a worthy person, that I wasn't doing enough to make my business successful, that I was perhaps letting people down. And so I had to really shift mm. that and understand that, you know, I, I come from a background, I don't come from a wealthy background. So the work ethic in my nuclear family is very strong. Like my, my dad owned a small business. My mom, um, although she stayed home with us, she was constantly doing stuff, constantly working, constantly fixing things, constantly doing things mm -hmm. that took care of the family. So that's the kind of DNA I grew up with was like, no, if something needs to get done, you get it done. Yeah. It's not like you sit around all day and eating bonbons and watching TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so that's kind of how I got there, but then I really, I had to readjust if I actually wanted to not only have a successful business, but have a successful mm -hmm. life. Yeah, well, I'm assuming you get asked this a lot by Sometimes. the women. Do you ever feel uh, pressure or judged or whatever, uh, critiqued because you don't have kids yet and I think you don't want to have kids, is that correct? Yeah, no, it is. So so I want to actually hit on all of mm -hmm. those because each that you mentioned, pressured, judged, critiqued, or critiqued. Yeah. So let's stick with pressured, judged, or critiqued because those are very distinct flavors. Yes, yes. So um, <laughs> at this stage, I don't get asked as much anymore because I've been talking about it so consistently mm -hmm. and trying to be as, as loving and just mm -hmm. straight up as possible about the fact that I've never wanted kids mm -hmm. and real about the fact that I chose consciously or unconsciously a man who already had a child. So some part of me clearly wanted to be a stepmom because I am right. and I love my stepson and he's awesome. So there's that, but I've never wanted to have my own biological kids. Why is that, do you think? You know, I've also never wanted to get married. Mm -hmm. I just think that um, we're all kind of born with these innate desires. And sometimes we adopt the expectations of our family, of society, of mm -hmm. the culture that we grew up in. For whatever reason, I feel like I popped onto this earth with a very clear inner compass of the things that I would like to explore or learn or experience, and also a very clear compass of those things which I just am not interested in. I don't not want it for other people. It's almost like when you go to a beautiful buffet, right? And you walk up and you're like, oh my goodness, there's these vegetables, and oh, there's these desserts and mm -hmm. these possibilities. You don't necessarily take from every option that's there. You're naturally attracted to some things over the other. And so in my life, I've always known what I want to go after. And the little plate that has have children and the little plate that's like <laughs> get, get married, married was not in your was I just was like, that's not for me. It's not it's, desirable. It's not my path. Yeah. Um, and so earlier on in my life, I had many people tell me that I'm making the worst mistake ever, that I'm gonna regret it. Both both 
marriage and baby, not having babies and not being Mostly married. babies. Yeah, yeah. Mostly babies. Was that I was going to, you know, reach some age and uh, just absolutely hate myself and like it would be the feel biggest mistake of my whatever, life yeah. that I was going to die alone. And I'm like, I'm going to die alone anyway. Well done. That's, uh, that's exactly right. We're not um, holding hands, dying uh, with someone. Yeah, likely not, over. unless, you know, God just forbid, a plane goes down. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, so there was, there was that in terms of, you know, so the feeling judged about it mm-hmm. and criticized. Let's mm-hmm. go into those pockets um, because that's interesting to me. I have had uh, folks, and I can understand this, so I do understand it, but I think that there is just room to explore and have a discussion. You know, when it comes to having a conversation around productivity, having a conversation around business growth, having a conversation around priorities. Uh, you know, and, and people can be very bold and courageous on like an Instagram comment where mm-hmm. they wouldn't be right, right. nearly so, you yeah. know, <laughs> if you were sitting across the table and just having a conversation, it was like, well, it's easy for you to say, those of us that have kids. And I'm like, n- now all of a sudden, anything that comes out of my mouth is all of a sudden without merit mm-hmm. because I have not given biological birth to a child through my yeah, vagina. Yeah. Like, really? Right. Is that where we're going to take this? Oh, and by the way, let's take a look at other folks that I have worked with who have seven kids, right, right. eight kids who say, oh, I found value in this principle and here's how I made this idea work in the context of my life. So I think that it's really interesting to have someone judge another person for mm, their choices. Yeah. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that it's... So how do, you ha- <clears throat> how do you handle being judged for that or for anything? Oh, I give absolutely <clears throat> no... No attention. Fs. Right, yeah, I you just, don't care. I don't because, you know, the more you care about what other people think, the more they own you. Mm-hmm. The more power they have over you. Yeah, and it's like, I want people to win. That's who I am as a person. I want people to win. I want them to be well. I want them to be successful. Mm -hmm. If there's anything that I could possibly share that even a tiny nugget of what I share helps them become more of who they want to be, then I feel I have done my job successfully. Do I have all the answers? Absolutely not. No way. No one has all the answers. But I do believe that what we create in our company and the programs we put together and the things that we share help people find their own answers. Mm. So I don't, honestly, I don't care. I really don't care because if someone is going to take the time to either make that comment or that judgment, my perspective would be that there's something in their own life that's not working that puts them in that position of feeling a sense of pain or feeling like they have to judge someone else to justify what's happening in their own life. I just don't think that gets any of us anywhere. So what do you do when people are judging you online or do you just delete? Do you just leave it and don't don't respond? Do you just say thank you for the feedback (laughs) and move on? If it depends, I think contextually, like if someone has a different opinion and they express it respectfully, Amazing. If someone's being hateful and trying to incite other people into a space of negativity and there's no basis in fact, there's no desire to have a meaningful conversation, again, depending on where it is, like we have a very, very clear and um, strong boundary in our programs. Like there's like a zero negativity, zero drama, zero bullshit policy that we have. Because no one can learn if they're in an unsafe environment. And if you feel like, you know, expressing an opinion or just kind of taking people down this drama-filled road, that's not why we're here. 
you know, in the context of my business, in the context of trying to help people gain skills and yeah. understandings, yeah. it's like if you want to go have contentious conversations, <laughs> go do it with your people. That, do it yeah, on yeah. your own page. Yeah, exactly. Go do it on your living room, or go mm-hmm. hold a community gathering. Invite people, correct, or whatever, (laughs) Um, but not in the learning environment that you have entrusted me to support you in. Mm -hmm. That's not about to happen. Mm -hmm. But on public pages, again, if it's just someone who actually just wants to have a meaningful conversation, which is, you know, the exception, not the rule, let's have that meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. But if it's someone who's just looking to kind of take a dump in your living room and stir the shit, I'm like, nah. Yeah. Nah, not interested. So how do you um, navigate your relationship Let's say, I don't know if Josh wants to get married or not, but if he wanted to get married at some point. Yeah. Like 10 years down the line, he was like, you know what, I just really want to be married. Yeah. Would that be something you'd be open to or changing your mind about? Yeah. I mean, and what if he's like, I really want to have another kid? Yeah. We've had the kid conversation, so I'm very really? clear on that one. Yeah, we've already, we've, because I think that it's important, especially for couples, I think it's important to have those real conversations about. Early. Yes. So we tackled that one, okay. and um, and we talked about it. And he was really loving and open with me, like, "Hey, especially you know, after being together 16 years in the early parties, like, if you change your mind and want to have kids, like, I would love to have a kid with you." Wow. So he was, but he's like, "But I don't feel the desire. Like, I I have my son. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He's a father already. So there was no it's not pressuring. No, That's it was great. just more like the open invitation. And then in terms of marriage, I don't." like to say never to anything mm-hmm. I just like to be honest about my truth in this moment mm-hmm. but if there came a point in the future where my something in me goes like I'm super into this and he was like I'm super into this too let's do it that very well could happen mm-hmm. um, and I'm super open with that but I what I love about our relationship is we we throw it on the table mm. and we talk about it everything yes all the time I think that's the best way to do it it's the only way because we human beings are complex and you know expecting another person to just capitulate to your desires mm. or what you really it's like it doesn't honor their individuality and i really believe that there is a way to nurture and love and support the growth <clears throat> of the person that yeah. you love mm-hmm. without pressuring them consciously or subconsciously to bend at your will. Right, or manipulative or passive aggressive in some ways to get no. them to do something yeah. they don't want to do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And for, for us, and I'll just the last thing I'll say on this, like in terms of a romantic relationship, the most important things to me, like, do we actually love each other? Do we respect each other? Mm-hmm. Are we mm-hmm. loyal to one another? Is there love and passion? Do we feel a sense of intimacy and connection? Do you, you know what I mean? It's like on a day-to-day basis, are we waking up so excited to be with one another? Not that it's always that way, right, but I'm just right, talking right. the vast majority yeah. of the time. Is yeah. shit on track? And if it is, in my book, Winning. You're winning. Yeah. Super winning. <laughs> yeah. Like if you're 90, 80 percent of the time, things are positive. Correct. And pretty smooth. And it's pretty good. And you still love that person. You want yeah. to be with them. So like with Josh, it's like I he is my human. He mm. is my person. We love our lives together. And when our work takes yeah. us, we're like, okay, you know, what's our next adventure together? Or like, That's when cool. when do we get to see each other? Or we switch our plans so that we have that night together if it was gonna be three weeks of going in different directions. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, I will fly home, even if it's just oh, for great. dinner or whatever. Or, do you know what I mean? That's cool. But that to me means more than a marriage certificate. Mm-hmm. Again, this yes, is just this my- is personal truth. This yeah. is my own personal truth, not yeah. for other people. Of course. Just for me. Where do you think you'd be um, if you were single the last 10 years? Oh my goodness. 
Um, like, would you would your business be as successful? Do you think? Again, we're just. I know it's hypotheticals. Do you think, or do you think? I don't know, you'd be distracted, or what do you think you would be? It's a great question. I don't know the honest answer to that, but um, I would be lying if I didn't say that the love and the depth of trust and connection that that we have together, it's impossible that that hasn't positively impacted my business. Yeah. You know, um, being single these past 10 years, like sometimes <laughs> I honestly will go out and about and I just, I look up and I'm like, thank you, sweet Jesus, mm. b- to that I am not kind of out on the scene. I just, I just, you yeah. know, and like bless people that are and I, you know, I hope for everyone who wants love to, to have love and yeah. to find love in the, in the form that's good for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm just real happy, so I, I don't even know. Do you think your business would be, uh, you know, as, successful? as profitable and successful? You know, to be really honest, it could go either way. Mm-hmm. Like, depending on how wild and crazy I got over those last 10 years, you know, you could, I could envision a version where it wasn't, but I could also envision a version that it was actually technically more successful. Who knows? Right. right. Do, do exactly. you know what I mean? Yeah, it yeah. could have been like. More financially successful or something. Or something. Yeah. Just yeah. because you know why? Because I didn't take those. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just didn't take a break. Th- exactly. That's exactly right. And so um, that's as possible, mm-hmm. you know, as, as the other one. Do you know any examples of individuals who have extremely successful brands, careers, or businesses who are single after 40 where they have healthy businesses and they are happy? Mm. Do you have do you have any friends like that, like females, males like that, who are single for single or, and or really not married, no kids, and they're just crushing and happy and fulfilled? Hmm. I don't. I was thinking about my friend, a friend that I have, who is in her sixties, who is not married, but now recently has a boyfriend. But she also does have a child, mm-hmm. but it's an adult child. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's she's very happy and she's very satisfied with she's her life. She's been single for a while. Or? She was single for the like a very good portion of mm-hmm. her adult life, and mm-hmm. only within the last year has a, a new boyfriend. And she did really well. And, she's and she did happy. really well. And she's amazingly wow. happy. So that's one that comes to mind. I'm trying to think. Most of my other dear friends um, are in some type of partnership marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah. Always, I'm always curious about that because I think about the men that I admire the most. Yes. They're typically in a committed marriage or some type of committed relationship. Yes. And their businesses take off when they have that support. Yeah. As opposed to just the distractions that are out in the world. Yeah. So. I think there's something settling that happens mm. for us when, when we have someone that we want to devote our mm. love to and invest yeah. in that that person and who they are. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I like it. Yeah. I do. Um, this book uh, came about, I think, from an Oprah talk that you did three years ago, almost four, three and a half years ago, four years ago. Is that yeah. Was? The idea I've been talking about for, for a while, for like yeah. two decades. But your mom taught you this when you were younger growing yeah. up. Yeah. Yep. But then you did a speech on it, yep. which I saw, which was amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Here in LA, and everyone's been asking you to do a book for a decade, and you finally decided to do one. Yes. Why do you feel like you wanted to do one now, and why this topic um, and not something else? So, 
The why now piece was a lot about trusting myself. Mm. You know, when I think any of us have opportunities knocking at the door, it can feel easy to be like, oh, I need to say yes because, Mm -hmm. you know, this window of opportunity isn't going to be open long or this is going to help me quote unquote get ahead or, you know, I need to make sure I maintain my edge and get out there. And one of the things that's been a big lesson for me is to always trust my own timing and not the exterior Mm -hmm. pressures Mm -hmm. of the world. Mm -hmm. And when those calls kept coming in, like, we need a book from you. Let's do a business book. Let's do whatever book. I was like, no, it doesn't. It feels like there's a seed that's been planted. And just like a real life plant, you know, that seed takes some time. You have to water it. There needs to be the right nutrients in the soil, needs to be the right weather. And then even as the seedling comes up out of the ground, you can't tug on it too fast to get it to bloom faster. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. you have to nurture it and it has to take the time it takes to come into its full possibility. Mm -hmm. And that's how I felt with this book. I had known that there was a big idea I wanted to write about when Oprah and her team had asked me to speak at Super Soul Sessions. The first thought about what the title of the talk would be was Everything is Figureoutable. And then I had appeared in my mental theater, this is your book. Like, Mm -hmm. it wasn't even like it was a decision. It was Mm -hmm. like, it was like the seedling had come up and go, this is me. (laughs) Now you are going to be ready to, you know what I mean? So, but the bigger reason in terms of an exterior reason, there's two things. One, we have a lot of challenges collectively happening right now. You know, there's over 350 million people around the world that suffer from depression. Mm. Their uh, suicide rates in the United States are at a 30-year high. You know, that speaks nothing of the economic, political, um, you know, pollution. Um, thinking about every level of inequality and injustice that impacts us. So we've got a lot of problems that yeah. both individually and collectively we need to solve. Mm-hmm. And I ran into a, a mutual friend of ours, um, Toby, who runs Shopify. I think you know him. Mm-hmm. I was um, actually working on the manuscript at like a restaurant in New York and he walked in and I was like, oh my goodness, because he's from Canada. I'm like, what are you doing here? And um, we caught up and he's like, why are you writing a book? You're so busy with the rest of your business. It's not like you need to write yeah. a book. And this is what I told him. I said, Toby, honestly, I feel like if I were to walk out in the street right now and I got hit by a bus, this is the one idea that I would mm. want to leave behind. Mm. Um, from every Marie TV, from everything I've ever done, mm. I feel like if I can somehow communicate this idea in a book form in a way that people can really get, that I could leave and go to that next chapter being like, peace, y'all, I did my yeah, thing, yeah. right? Like, I'm fine, I'm good. So uh, that's the reason I wanted to write this book because I feel like every single one of us has such innate wisdom and so many capabilities that we're not even fully aware of. And that if I could write about this simple three word phrase that has helped me at every single stage of my life and continues to help me to this day, I still use it every day, um, that it would give people a tool that could serve them regardless of where they come from, regardless of their age, regardless of their economic background, regardless of their cultural background, because it's so simple. It's not complex. And in this final section, WNBA superstar Candace Parker talks about the power of having control over your emotions and actions so that you can respond rather than react in situations. How do you handle your emotions when you know you've made a mistake and you're being criticized for that mistake, whether it be by a few people or by the online world or whatever it may be? It's really funny because um, this last two or three years, my mantra has been calm is a superpower. 
I always struggled because I feel as though in women's sports, in women in general, in business, wherever, politics, if you lose your composure, you're considered crazy, irrational, mm. out of control. Whereas with a man, you're considered passionate, competitive, and all these things. And so I just determined like it's better to be calm anyway. Mm. Like you look back on things and usually mm. it's when you go crazy. Where you're like, you know, I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't have, have said that. that. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have thrown that. I should, you know, you're apologizing for action, usually not in action. And so that's kind of been my place of trying to reach that calm and be calculated. Mm. And um, the people I respect the most, they think before they say. That's kind of what I've tried to develop. I'm not perfect at all. I'm probably nowhere near where I need to be, but that's kind of been my mantra. Do you think you're, you think the greatest athletes are more calm than they are reactive and passionate, let's say? Or, you know, Muhammad Ali was very passionate, very outspoken, you know, Conor McGregor, like these people are very outspoken and passionate. Do you think you can be greater by being more calm? I think our society likes to put and label individuals. Like you meet people that are loud and you know say all these words, but what's the action that backs it up? And to me, it's the action. It's not necessarily what right. you do all before that. Right. Um, Dame Lillard to me is one of the most. The guy's a machine. He's a machine, but he's, he's one of those leaders that just, you can't tell on his face. And unfortunately for me, I was born with this problem that everything I think <laughs> <laughs> comes across my I'm face the same way. to the point where now my daughter 11 years old will be like mom what's wrong like when something comes on the television or something like that like you think this and I'm and I'm like no I don't think that but I do but I don't <laughs> you know so yeah. it's trying to get under control having composure and I've learned throughout that when the team or whatever organization you're a part of as a leader if they're hyped and their level is 10, it's your job to kind of bring the team down to an mm -hmm. even keeled level. And when everybody is down, it is your job to bring be, them up. Yes. A little bit, yeah. It is your job. And so I feel as though like as I'm getting older and as I'm maturing, I try to do that in whatever situation, whether it's the team, whether it's my family, um, I'm trying. Yeah. Now it's not always. <laughs> I know, right? It's not always, you know, it doesn't always work out. But at the same time, I think that's what I'm, I'm attempting to do. Are you a student of sports psychology any chance? Or have oh you worked gosh. with sports psychology? It's my minor. It's my minor in college, yeah. Do, I was, you, yep. do you work with any uh, mindset coaches today or have you recently? So I am huge into reading and mm -hmm. then reaching out to those that those I author read. Yeah, those <laughs> authors. Um, Joshua Medcalf wrote a book, Chop Wood, Carry Water, which mm. I read right before in 2016. Mm -hmm. before um, we won our championship. And Ooh. what struck me about that book, and you know, not spoiler, but in the book it was talking about um, golf balls and how initially golf balls were smooth. And when people would hit them, you couldn't control the direction that they were going. But they noticed that the more dented the golf balls were, as you hit them, they actually traveled better. Mm. So he used that as a metaphor of like humans and people in life and individuals and like, getting beat up and getting bruised, you actually will travel farther and better. And that just hit me in a way. Um, you know, the whole book is just do the best you can and then, you know, live in the moment. Yeah. And that's kind of, that, that kind of reached me. And so I'm huge into psychology. I read 
a million books. Like I'm really into it. Um, I love panels. I love podcasts. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where I go for my sports psychology. Yeah, I read a book. I think it was called Champions Mindset, or maybe it's called Train to Win. I forget. I'll have to check it out mm -hmm. again. But um, this sports psychologist said that you should always practice like it's a game and bring your energy to the game level, and then at game time, actually like calm down. Level. And just be more relaxed and calm and be in the flow. So I always thought that was interesting. It's like, raise it up in practice, bring it down before the game. Because usually, before I learned that, I would get so hyped before a game. Like, <laughs> in the ah! game. And I'm like, man, I'm tired. <laughs> you know, it's like you got no energy because you've just exhausted it in mm -hmm. warm-ups and you're not relaxed. So, <laughs> it's so true. Have you ever done that where you're just like, ah, we're going to the championship. And then... Ooh, I can't even lift my knees today. Yeah, that we call that the like first two minutes. You know, when you get out of breath in the first two minutes yeah. of the game. And, you haven't done anything. You know, the the playoffs is. I remember we were in the WNBA finals, and I walked out there, and it was a game five against Minnesota, 2016. This is my first elimination winner take all game, mm. and I remember looking around, and my heart was beating. And you're taking deep breaths, the first two minutes, and then you get lost in your craft. So it's like. Literally, it's just getting past those first yeah. two minutes of anxiousness, and that's when you have the turnovers and the problems or whatever. And then you just settle in, mm -hmm. and you try to, you know, do what you've always done. Yeah. Who was the most influential person in your life growing up? Well, growing up, it, I idolized my brothers. Uh -huh. My two older brothers, um, Anthony and Marcus, they're 8 and 11 years older than me, so wow. I was the baby, baby sister. Um and Anthony actually went on, played in the NBA, played for Toronto, played for the Cleveland Cavaliers mm. uh, for a while. And then my middle brother is actually a radiologist. He, he wanted to be a doctor since he was five. And he, he was, uh, went to medical school, went to Johns Hopkins. So we're really proud of him. So I had two amazing role models, just in not what their like craft was, but just as people. Like yeah. even to this day, anything I go through any problem, obstacle, any choice I'm trying to make, I always reach out and talk to them. I mean, that's, you know, they really are my foundation. Yeah. What was the greatest lesson each one of them taught you? My goodness, that's such a great, uh, great question. Anthony is Mr. Devil's Advocate. So whether he <laughs> is for it or whether he is against it, he is going to ask you the other side. Yeah, that is yeah. my brother. So now when I'm thinking, and you know, I think I watched like an old Full House episode where it talked about your conscience and how eventually it becomes your own voice as uh -huh. opposed to your parents telling you you're not supposed to do stuff. Yes. That's my conscience now. Like I <laughs> hear Anthony and now it's my voice where I'm like, okay, so what if this, you know, what is the other side? And so Anthony kind of, I joke with him that like he would be the one that would you know, play, play devil's advocate to like winning the lottery or something like that. You know, he's that, right. he's that type. Um, but I would say that that's the lesson from Anthony. And then from Marcus, mm -hmm. he is one of those guys that is just so certain on what he wants and he will do in work for anything. And he said he wanted to be a doctor at five years old mm. and he worked and stayed motivated and long hours you know, push through adversity, everything to become a doctor. Yeah. And so I think just watching them operate the way, the way their fathers, their husbands, um, it really is inspirational for me. Yeah, that's cool. I love that you are a TikTok star through your daughter. And I love the relationship you guys have together <laughs> where you're having jokes and playing around a lot on your social media. I think everyone should follow you guys there. What was that like being a, a mom 
in a career that I guess most women don't have kids at that age when they're trying to become great as an athlete in the WNBA that early. What was that like for you being a, a young mom while being the face of the WNBA? How did you manage that? And how do you manage it? <laughs> I remember it was coming off of 2008. We won the national championship. Mm-hmm. Won Olympic gold medal. We lost in the WBA semifinals, uh, Western Conference finals on a last second shot. Mm. Anyway, I can still see oh. it. Um, and I remember I had just won Rookie of the Year and MVP, and I was in San Antonio. And I remember I started feeling a little sick. And I was like, hmm, okay. And my best friend was the first to, to find out. Like I told her that I was expecting. We were all excited. I was supposed to go to Russia that year to play overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously we wanted to wait to tell everybody or whatever. The first reactions I got were so disappointing to me. Like it was almost more of like, how could you do this to us as fans? Not within the organization, mm. but just the reaction that I got from others of like, oh, well, she's done. Like she's washed up. She's not going to be able to come back. Like, you it's know, she's fr- not. After your first year in the league. This is after my first year. Wow. I, I, you know, I became a, a young mom, and I, I let me give you some uh, history. I've always wanted to be a mother. That yeah. has been what I feel as though I was born to to be. Oh, I was wow. playing dolls till I was like dang near fourteen. Like wow. I just love the idea um, of having a little you running around, and so I always wanted to be a young mom. So although I was surprised, I was extremely excited to have a have a daughter. Um, mm. But that wasn't the way it was accepted. And at the time, you know, I set my mind where I was like, I'm going to come back and play on this date. So she was born May 13th. I played on July 5th in a game. Two months later? Played two months, two later. months later. I was working out two weeks after I had her. What? I worked out my whole pregnancy. Oh, my god. Young and dumb. You don't know. You're right, young right. and dumb. I got you know? this. I'll be back in young two and weeks. Dumb. Yeah, back locked up, everything. It was crazy. But, oh, my um, gosh. Two months later playing. Yes, and she honestly has been my entire inspiration motivation every single thing every day i wake up i want her to know that i'm working for her i want her to know that you know i love her and i want to set a great example and honestly the biggest thing that i would like to message i would like to get across is within parenting within sports we've got to change and shift the perception Mm -hmm. of athletes and parenting and being there because you know a number of times I would go go places and Layla wouldn't be with me and they would be like, oh, well, who's watching Layla? Like, who's taking care of Layla? Like, who's whatever? But they're not asking LeBron or Steph or anybody mm. or Dame Lillard or whatever. And I think it's so important for fathers to be there as well and to be present. And we're seeing now paternity leave and we're seeing guys like Jimmy Butler miss his Miami Heat debut to be there for the birth of his wow. daughter. We're seeing how hands-on Steph Curry is. And so... I think for me, it's, um, you know, the amount of support that I've had from L.A. Sparks, the amount of support I've had from my family. Um, I'm lucky because as a working mom, my organization allows me to bring my daughter along. That's cool. Um, I was nursing and at halftime of games. No way. Yeah, it was That's just kind crazy. of the way it is. And so we just, we've grown up. Me and Layla have grown up together. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a full rundown of today's show with all the important links. And also make sure to share this with a friend and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts as well. I really love hearing feedback from you guys. So share a review over on Apple and let me know what part of this episode resonated with you the most. And if no one's told you lately, I want to remind you that you are loved, you are worthy, and you are matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great. At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out, yada yada. And bye. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Get iPhone 12 with 5G with no activation fees and nada yada yada. Only at Metro by T-Mobile. Switch to Metro, bring your ID. This offer isn't available for customers currently at T-Mobile or that have been with Metro in the past 180 days.